If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 this morning. We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 14. If you don't have one with you, there should be one maybe in the, the pew in front of you or beside you. Um, and find Mark's Gospel. We'll be in Mark chapter 14. And I want to begin this morning with a question. And it's actually the question that makes up the, the title of the sermon, How Will You Be Remembered? How will you be remembered? That's the question that I, that I want you to consider. I want us to consider together this morning. And as I thought, there, there are some individuals who, who they're remembered because of one-time events. So if I say the name Paul Revere, he did one thing. I mean, he did more than one thing, but he's known for one thing. Or Bill Buckner. Some of you sports fans, Red Sox fans may know what I'm talking about. Or, I'm showing my age a little bit, but maybe a music group called Hanson. Right? There was one song. So there's there's some, some people that are known for one-time events, but, but then others are known for, for more of a, a lifetime trajectory. And so I thought about the, the, the names Bobby Fischer. He's the great American chess player, the greatest ever, some will say. That his life was dedicated to chess, to, to learning the skill. Or, or maybe Michael Phelps. So you may know he, he lived and breathed until a couple years ago, and when he retired, he lived and breathed swimming the most decorated Olympian, American Olympian of all time. Or Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was known, is known for, for a lifetime committed to, to the sport of basketball. Or, I mentioned earlier, Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon is known for her commitment to China missions. And so these are individuals who, who are more known for, for their lifetime trajectories. They're, they're individuals whose lives are remembered for, for one thing. They pursued one thing, and that is how they will be Remembered, well, well, in our passage this morning, in, in Mark chapter 14, we're going to encounter two individuals. And the two individuals that we encounter are remembered for the events that take place, or at least begin to take place in these verses. One individual, when, when you hear the name in a moment, you'll almost immediately know what event this person is known for. And the other person, the person who is actually unnamed in our passage, when you hear the action that this person is known for, you almost certainly remember the person. And so in looking at this passage, we're going to be faced with the question, how will you be remembered? What will others think about you? What will those who know you, how will they remember you? How kids or neighbors or coworkers or friends, how will you be remembered? And as we consider this question, I want us to focus not so much on individual actions. Okay, so I hope none of you are, are known for letting a World Series, potentially World Series winning ground ball go through your legs, right, and losing the game for your team. But rather, I, I want us to consider these, these individual actions, especially in this passage, they're representative of larger life trajectories. And so what, what, what will be the theme of your life? How will you be remembered when you lay down and breathe your last Breath, And so the two options that are laid forth in our passage, as we'll see, are, are two polar opposite life trajectories. And most basically, there's a life lived for self, a life concerned with yourself and your wants and your needs only. And other option is a life lived for Christ, which is the opposite of a life lived for self. And so we'll see on one hand an action that seems solely motivated by pride and greed. One of our characters is, is motivated by pride and greed and focused on self. And on the other hand, we'll see an action that is selfless, motivated by, by an other's focus, by a focus on Christ himself. Well, those are our two options that we'll see in, in our passage. And so how will we be remembered? How will you be remembered? 
With that question in mind, let's turn to Mark 14. So I'm going to, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. And so hopefully you have your, your Bible and you can follow along as I read. So Mark 14, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Mark writes, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 3, and while he, that is Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, Jesus continues, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, he went to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Well, our passage, I've broken it down into, into three sections, three pretty, pretty distinct sections. And if you, if you notice it in the reading, there's, it begins and it ends with the same event, and it sandwiches one event in the middle. Okay, and so, so we see in, in verses 1 through 2, we see the plot. We see the scheming of the religious leaders, followed by verses 3 through 9, the middle section, we see a beautiful thing. Jesus calls it a beautiful thing. We see this event take place. And then finally, we see the unlikely betrayer in verses 10 through 11. So let's work through these sections together. So first, the plot. The plot, verses 1 and 2. Look down there in verses 1 and 2. We've, we've reached the, the final stages of Mark's gospel. If you've been with us, you're relieved. We're getting near the end. This passage here, it transitions from where we were last week, and it transitions to the beginning of the end. This, this marks the beginning of the passion narrative. The suffering of Jesus starts here in this chapter. And this narrative is the events that take place in the last days of Christ. And so as we get here, this is a culmination. This is the rising action. We're moving towards the climax of Mark's gospel, which is his death. His death and his, his resurrection. That's the purpose and the mission of Jesus' coming. And so Mark is moving us towards that. His final days are unfolding. They'll unfold before us. So notice there, verse 1, Mark locates these verses in relationship to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you see there? It was two days before these events, these festivals. Now, we'll talk about the Passover next week. Okay, that'll be next week's focus. But just note that Mark here is now, he's starting to to hone in on time. Here's specific time. So he's setting the stage for what happens. And so for for our purposes here and understanding the text, this would mean it's two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that the city would have been been overcrowded. One one author said up to five times its normal population. And so there's tons and tons and tons of people there, Jewish people that have come for these events. And that's why this this plan, this scheme, that the the leaders say we we can't do it publicly. We've got to wait until after all these crowds leave. 
After the feast is over, the crowds would go back home. So the, the scribes, the people that want to destroy Jesus, they say, we can't do it now because if we do, there'll be riots. There's people everywhere, and, and, and we don't want a bigger problem than we can handle. And so Mark says they're seeking to arrest him and kill him by stealth, in the secret. Now, if you've been with us through our study, this plot on Jesus' life, it's not new. Right? All the way back in, in chapter 3, the Pharisees were seeking to destroy him. So, so all throughout, in, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, there's been this scheming group of religious leaders who want this man destroyed, killed. And they're, it's reaching its climax, and they're getting closer and closer. And so that, that's the scheme. That's where Mark starts. They're trying to kill Jesus, but they want to wait until after the feast is over. After setting that stage in verses 1 and 2, Mark then shifts away from the plot, which he'll return to in, chapter, in, in verse 10 and 11, but he, he transitions to a scene that takes place in a, in a house nearby in Bethany. And that's the, that's the beautiful thing. That's where the beautiful thing takes place in verses 3 through 9. So let's look secondly at, at the beautiful thing. Look there in verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he's reclining at table. So he's, he's retreated from the city, and this, is, this, this would have been a two-mile walk or, or travel um, away from Jerusalem. This is, this is where Jesus and the disciples have been going this whole time. So they're back in Bethany, and he's reclining at the table. So Jesus says he, he's gone, he, he's been eating with his friends, they're, they're reclining at table, the meal's probably over, and then in comes this woman, in comes this woman. As he's reclining at the table, a woman came. She comes. Her, Mark's concern, notice, isn't her identity. He, he, she's never named. She's the unnamed woman. I'll refer to her as the unnamed woman throughout. Mark never records who this is. Mark doesn't want us to know her name. He wants us to know her actions, to, to know what she does. Because she's contrasted with, with the, the chiefs and the chief priests and the scribes before and Judas at the end. She loves Jesus and adorns him. She's a contrast to those who are trying to arrest and kill Jesus. Her devotion, her love is, is what she's remembered for. So she comes in and, and notice a few things about what happens when she comes in. First, she comes with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it on his head. So first notice this is an anointing. So she breaks it and she pours it on his head. Now, this is something that's lost on us, right? If we're sitting at dinner, right, or at a restaurant, someone comes in and pours stuff on us, right? We're mad at the waiter or waitress, right? I want my meal for free because that's a bad thing, right? Well, here, this would have been normal. A, a, a guest who were, who were prominent, important, valued, treasured guests, they would have been anointed. That was a way of showing honor to the guest that's gathered there. And so, so part of this is her devotion and love is that she's anointing him, showing him as, as an honored guest, but Mark makes clear that, that this anointing is not normal. So it's normal in one sense, but it's abnormal in the other sense, that it's excessive. Mark makes one thing, one thing clear, that that's, this anointing is distinguished. It is a costly anointing. It's the substance that she uses to anoint him that Mark draws her attention to. Right? This cost, this is an expensive, Mark even says, very costly is what she pours over him. This woman's action is extreme. So, so notice, secondly, the perfumer, the ointment, the, the nard, the pure nard, as it's recorded. So Mark says that this ointment was, was pure nard and very costly. It would have been kept in an alabaster, alabaster flask. And, and so to get it out, you'd have to break the flask. It's a one-time use. So it would have been stored. And so she breaks the, the, the neck of the flask and then pours it over. So Mark records in verse 5 that this perfume was valued at 300 denarii. Which means that, that this was a whole year's wage 
a whole year's worth of wages. And so think about a yearly salary. I mean, you know, I, I can't compute, but, but some commentators said it would have been close to twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 worth in this alabaster flask. And she breaks it and she pours it on his head. The fact that Mark highlights the value tells us that, that the value is, is what's important. That's what he wants to highlight, the value. It wasn't something that, that, that would have been sitting in the bathroom cabinet. Maybe some of you have gotten cologne for Christmas. You got it three years ago and there's still just this much gone, right? You just, yeah, whenever I need it, I'll put it on, right? This isn't that, okay? Th- this would have been a treasured possession. This flask of ointment would have been a family treasure, One author, one commentator says the value and its identification as nard suggests that it was a family heirloom that was passed on from one generation to another, from mother to daughter. So it would have been in the family for several generations. So instead of this this cheap cologne, it's more like your mom or your grandmother or your great-grandmother's diamond ring that's been passed down from woman to woman to woman. It's, it's not a diamond, it's, it's a, a jar of perfume. It's expensive perfume, it's costly. And so, so in recording this action, she's giving up a year's worth of money. She's just, she's just giving it up, pouring it out. And, and what is she getting in return? Right? Nothing. Right? The, the onlookers say she gets nothing. What a waste. Mark wants us to know that these actions, they're not about her. They're not about what she's going to get. She, rather, is to be seen as one who is consumed with love and adoration for Christ. He is worthy of all that she has. The whole flask. He deserves all of it. In her mind, using that perfume, despite its cost and value, was the least that she could do for Jesus, the Messiah. Her anointing of Jesus represents a major sacrifice. It indicates the depth of her love. It's an act of love and devotion and adoration. We could say that when one recognizes who Jesus is, one realizes that all I could ever give will never be enough. And it's just when you recognize who Jesus is, you could never give enough. You freely give all that you have. This woman doesn't expect people to commend her. And she, she doesn't, she's not doing it so that other people say, wow, look, look at that. She certainly doesn't expect people to condemn her, which is what we'll see happens. I don't think she even cared what other people thought. She was consumed with who was sitting at the table, and she broke the, the alabaster jar and poured the perfume on this honored guest. Notice there in verse 4. Look down at verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly. Now notice they're talking to themselves. So they're saying this to themselves, they're indignant, they're, they're irate, they're incensed, they're, they're annoyed with this woman. And they say to themselves, why was the ointment wasted like that? Do you see how they see what's happened? Waste. Why wasted? They continue, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, and not only that, it could have been given to the poor. So that's the end of their, their, their thoughts to themselves. They scolded her, it says. So they think these things themselves, then they're, they're angry at her. What a waste. Condemning her. Now Mark doesn't identify these people, but I think it's safe to assume that this, this is probably the disciples. It's probably the disciples who are, who are acting this way. They, they're, they're missing the point. And their main issue is that this ointment was wasted. In other words, this served no purpose. What a waste. It didn't benefit anyone. Right? Some of them would say, well, it didn't benefit us. But they would say, we, we could have sold it and give it to the poor. 
which would have been a which would have been a something that was called for at this time of the feast. Part part of what the people the Jewish people did was they they gave to the poor. So that's probably what they're thinking. We could we could have given to the poor. What a waste! And they scolded her. And so so these 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 men. What a useless woman. How in the world could you ever think that was a good idea, lady? You've lost your mind. Don't you know that Jesus, he loves the poor. He doesn't care about being anointed. I can't believe you. And at this point, as we hang between verses 5 and 6, we might actually agree with the disciples. Right? Wouldn't Jesus be concerned for the poor? Would he want a year's worth of wages poured on him? Certainly he wouldn't want all that perfume. Didn't he just teach on, on the obligation to love others? Wasn't this a great opportunity to care for the poor? And so as we think about that, as, as we let those questions settle on us, imagine the thoughts going through this woman's mind as she's just done this and now she's publicly scorned and scolded. Think about what's going through her mind. I mean, she's just done what she thinks is a great thing. She's adorned and anointed the greatest guest that had ever been to Bethany, that ever walked this earth. The greatest guest had ever been on the planet. She's anointed and she'd done so out of great love for Christ and with great joy. And immediately she's condemned and scolded and rebuked. And so what does she think? How, how's Jesus going to respond? What does he think about what just happened? Notice verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why, why do you trouble her, disciples? Leave her alone. Why are you bothering this woman? Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. I mean, imagine the relief that this woman feels as these words are proclaimed. Imagine the relief. (sighs) Rather than scolding her, Jesus says, you ought to admire her. You ought to appreciate what's been done here. And notice there in verse 7 and 8, Jesus continues, and and what he does is he he lays the ground or the support for why it's a beautiful thing. Notice, Jesus is explaining why it's a beautiful thing. Verse 7, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And so that's Jesus' reason. This is a beautiful thing because you'll always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. That's why it's a beautiful thing. And so to understand what he's saying, first, let's understand what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that one shouldn't care for the poor. Okay, get that straight. He's not saying that. His, his life and ministry said otherwise. Right? His followers ought to care for the poor. So it's not about not caring for the poor. It's not a beautiful thing because she neglects the poor. That's not what he's saying. In fact, the word in itself implies that, that when Jesus says that you always have the poor and whenever you want, you can do good for them, the implication is, and you should do good. That, that's what Jesus is saying. You'll always have the poor, and whenever you want, you can do good with them. And you should. That's the implication there. And so the reason for this act being beautiful doesn't have to do with the poor. Instead, it has to do with Jesus. You'll always have the poor with you, Jesus says, but you will not always have me. There's a temporary nature to Jesus and his ministry, his earthly ministry, it's, it's temporal and it's coming to an end. I'm not always going to be here, he says. It's similar, if you remember, all the way back in Mark 2, when Jesus is asked why his disciples aren't, aren't fasting. He says it's not right while the bridegroom is with them for them to fast. There, there's something inappropriate about fasting while Jesus is with them. He says, I'm, I'm going to be gone and then they'll fast. 
So it's Jesus' presence that, that makes fasting inappropriate. And similarly here, this pouring out of perfume on him by this unnamed woman and this anointing is appropriate because his time is short and he's going to be gone soon. Notice how he continues in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And so this woman has shown her love and her adoration for Jesus by doing what she can. She's done what she could. She's held forth as an example. She is a disciple who loves the Lord and completely and totally gives of herself for him. Much like the widow, remember back in the temple, who gave all that she had to live on. Again, this woman is an example of love and adoration. But notice what else Jesus says. It's not just that she anointed him. He says in verse 8, she anointed his body beforehand for burial. Do you see that? He adds for burial. This is a prophetic mention. Jesus has been saying this whole time, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. This is another mention. He's going to die and it's coming soon. So what she's done is an act of, of, uh, uh, for, for preparing him, a ritual for, for the, his coming burial, his death. And so her act of love and devotion, it's proper, Jesus says, because of what awaits him. He's going to be buried soon, which means he's going to be killed soon. One commentator states, there's little reason to think that the woman may have actually meant for her gift to be anointing of Jesus' body for his coming burial. That's not in her mind at all. She just sees him, and she anoints him because of her love and adoration. And Jesus adds this twist and interprets her gift in light of what's ahead. So she's not doing this because she wants to anoint his body for burial, but Jesus adds that twist in interpreting what's going to happen. It's not for her knowledge of his coming death, but her complete attention to him that provided the actual basis for Jesus' commendation of her. In contrast with the disciples and the religious leaders, this woman concerns herself solely with giving honor to Jesus. And because of that, she's done a beautiful thing, Jesus says. Imagine the joy and affirmation that she would have felt when she hears these words. She's done right. She's done all that she could. She will not be forgotten. Notice verse 9, Jesus continues, And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, not her name, but what she has done will be told in memory of her. And because of the nature of what she's done, she, she probably doesn't care that her name's not told. She wasn't ever about her name, unlike these disciples. Who's going to be the greatest, Jesus? This is an example of a true disciple. Jesus highlights her act of love and devotion. And these, this act will be remembered, not her name, as long as the gospel is proclaimed. And here, in our reading of this gospel, we, we confirm Jesus' words. She is remembered. She should be honored because of her cost, because of her act of devotion. And after, after that scene in Bethany, Mark then transitions back to where he left off in verse 2, this plot, this scheme to trap and kill Jesus. So look there at verse 10 and 11. Our last section, we see an unlikely betrayer. Remember up in verse 1 and 2, the plan was not to arrest Jesus during the feast, right? We can't do this. Too many people. It's going to be chaos. We're not going to do it during the feast. They, didn't want, to, they want, didn't want a chance of potential riot. So they're going to wait. But then in verse 10, things change, right? We've got a wild card. Let's, let's hear him. Verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to them, to the chief priest, in order to betray him to them. So Judas, one of the twelve, goes to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus. It, it, was, it would have been no secret that they wanted Jesus captured, arrested, killed. And so Judas goes to them. I, I'm ready. I, I'm here to do what you want. Verse 11, when they heard it, 
they were glad. They were glad and they promised to give him money. They rejoiced. Yes, we can do this and we can even do it during the feast. We'll give you money. Thank you for what you've done. We'll pay you for this. And Mark ends this section with Judas seeking an opportunity to betray him, which we'll see next week it comes. And so Judas goes to them. They're glad. They promise to give him money. And just like that, the betrayer is revealed. The plans of the chief priests and the scribes, they're they're altered. Maybe we'll do this during the feast. Notice here, Mark is sparse on details regarding Judas. And he just, Judas went. He said he'd be willing to betray him, and they promised him money. That's all that Mark records. He doesn't record the motive behind Judas' betrayal. He doesn't comment on the reason at all. Now, some of the other Gospels give some motivating reasons. So if you, if you, if you read the parallels in, in the other Gospels, some talk about his greed. He, he wanted the money. Some talk about the influence of Satan. But Mark's concern isn't, isn't why. Mark's concern here is Judas did this. And, and anything else from this text is, is pure speculation. The, the point that Mark is drawing out here is not the reason. He's simply highlighting the fact that Judas, one of the twelve, is actually the one who's going to help carry out the plans of the destruction of Jesus. That Judas here is acting in line with verses 1 and 2, the scheming priests and scribes. And he's contrasted with this middle section, with, with this woman, this unnamed woman who's shown herself to be a true example of what it means to follow Jesus. And so Mark leaves this story, on, leaves us on edge, where Judas exits the scene seeking an opportunity to betray him. And that's where we'll, we'll leave off our passage. Well, let me, let me close in our, our final couple minutes with, with application points. I have three application points from this passage for us this, this Christmas Eve morning. So first, first point of application, the death of Christ. Did you notice that in these 11 verses, each scene, the plotting of, the, of these leaders and the anointing of, of Jesus and the betrayal contract that, that's made between Judas and the, the scribes, that all of these sections foreshadow Jesus' death. You see that all these 11 verses, are, are, are the theme is the death. It's coming. People are scheming. He's being prepared for burial. And now we have a betrayer. We have a way that it's going to happen. So they're all pointing towards the death of Christ. Jesus is going to die. This isn't a surprise to us. We've been going through Mark's gospel. And so we ought to just pause here at this point and know that, that the death of Christ is significant. The death of Christ is, is important. It's much more than, than just an unfortunate turn of events. He doesn't just happen to fall into the hands of unrighteous men. Right? This is a purposeful death. He's moving towards this. He's not running away from this. He is moving towards it because that's why he came. The angel, when Joseph is afraid, he's going to divorce Mary. And the angel says, don't be afraid. What, what, what she conceives is, is of the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son. And you're to name him Jesus. And what does the angel say? Why Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. At the outset, at, at the incarnation, at the promise of the birth, it's, it's about the death. He's going to save his people from their sins. Right? That, 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 that is done not through a political Messiah who, who overthrows and tramples Roman rule. No, it's by a Messiah who is conquered by death, the suffering servant who dies in atoning death on the cross. That's how conquering comes. The Messiah is going to die on a cross. The the, the Word made flesh is going to end in a grave. 
So as we remember the, the birth of Christ, we, we must do so remembering where the birth is, is leading. It's a purposeful birth. He was born to die. And, and of course, let me mention, he, he doesn't end, he doesn't stay in the grave. Right? That, that's the hope of the Christian faith. He's not dead. Right? He, he was raised. And after he was raised, he, he was ascended into heaven. And, and we await his second coming. And it will come, he will come bodily as he went bodily. And that will be the culmination of all things. And that's the day we long for as Christians. And so if you're not here this morning, you, you ought to know the, the birth of Christ. You ought to know the death of Christ. But you also ought to know the return of Christ. That, that when he comes, he's coming for his people. For those who are trusting in him. And if you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Christ. If you're not a Christian, the, the news of his return is not good for you. You'll be judged and condemned as his enemy. But he hasn't yet come which is good news for you. There's still time. It's good news for me. Right? Christ is, is, is willing and, and ready and able to save you from your sins. That's why he was born. That's what Joseph was told. God came to save sinners. Sinners like me, sinners like you. And so if you're not a Christian, I would urge you on this Christmas Eve, turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You can know him as Lord and Savior. You can be reconciled to the Father and the Son and the Spirit through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so it's what I would call you, I would urge you, I would plead with you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus today, right now. He is a, he is a worthy Lord who deserves your full love and devotion. So the death of Christ, we must not forget the death, but the second point of application the extravagant love of the woman. It's an extravagant love. We, we simply ought to observe this woman and recognize what she has done. We, we ought to, part of us, that there should be an impulse that we want to be like her. As followers of Christ, we should emulate her. Jesus says to her, she's done a beautiful thing. She's done what she could. While those around her, the, the spiritual disciples, they're busy scolding her for not doing something more spiritual. Jesus commends her. She's done something good, a beautiful thing. She's shown extravagant love. And, and so I, I would urge us to ask the question, have, have I done what I can? Jesus said she's done what she could. It's a beautiful thing because it's what she could. And, and so I'd simply ask myself, I would urge you to ask yourself, have you done what you could? Does Christ, upon receiving displays of our love and, and devotion, does, does Jesus remark, it's a beautiful thing. He's done what he could. She's done what they could. We all stand in, in need of being challenged by this woman. We ought to give wholeheartedly, completely to our Savior with acts of love and charity. Which leads to our final application, which is, which is the very point we began. The last point of application is the question, how will you be remembered? How will you be remembered? There are two distinct options presented before us in this passage. On one side, there are the religious leaders and Judas Iscariot. On the other, there's this unnamed woman. And all throughout, at every point through this passage, there are two sides of opposite coins. Right? There, there's a contrast. She acts out of sacrificial love for Christ. They act out of self-interest, seeking to destroy the one that, that is a challenge to their authority. She acts with humility. They're driven by pride. She has the mindset of the kingdom. They are building their own empires She's an outsider. Notice she's at the house of Simon the leper. She's an outsider who Jesus counts as in. 
they, they're all insiders who actually are showing themselves to be out. Right? These are contrasts. And the question that this passage presses upon us is, which side are you on? Which side are you on? There's, there's one kingdom worth living for. There's one kingdom that will last. There's one kingdom that offers life and hope and joy, and that is not the kingdom of self. It's not. We ought to live our lives being, being poured out for, for the lasting kingdom, for Christ's kingdom. We ought to give ourselves completely to Christ and his kingdom. That's how we ought to be remembered. That should be the desire of our legacy. We ought to leave a legacy to our kids and grandkids. Yep, don't know much about them, but I know that they, they love Jesus. That's a legacy worth leaving. Well, I'm going to close with, with a few lines from, from the poem that was on here. This is written by, by a, a missionary named C.T. Studd. had a fascinating life. He was a, a, a world-famous cricket player who was converted and became a missionary. And he wrote this poem. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this poem, maybe you've heard it before, um, but, but it, it should have been in your, your bulletin. I'm just going to read a couple of them. But, but this, this refrain throughout this whole poem, the refrain that he keeps going back to and back to, is only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Do you know how many lives you have to live here on this earth and, and make a, an impact for Christ's kingdom? It's one. It's a breath. It's fleeting. You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. Like flowers of the field, you have one life, and it will soon be passed. And, and C.T. Studd would say, only what's done for Christ will last. You can, you can fill your life with so many things that are fleeting. I can, and I do. There's one thing worth pursuing. There's, there's one kingdom worth living for, and that's Christ, and that's what will last. And so stands after stanza, he's, he's reflecting on the choice that every Christian faces. Are you going to live for yourself, or are you going to live for Christ? And the clear call throughout is that living for Christ is, is, what's, is what will last, only what's done for Christ. So, so let me read, I'll read the last two stanzas. He says, Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And then here's the final Final stanza, only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray.